Hysteria is brought to you by Books. This Mother's Day, give mom her flowers. She deserves the best. That's why you should send her farm fresh flowers from Books. That's short for bouquets. And right now, you can get 25% off your entire Books purchase. Here's why everyone likes the Books company. Books is different. Their flowers are cut fresh and sourced directly from the best flower farms, so they last way longer. They even have flowers grown on the side of a volcano, which I love. Books has modern designs and unique flowers you can't find anywhere else. Books is simple. Go online, pick the delivery date, and you are done. Mother's Day is May 12th. Don't miss the chance to thank your mom. Order your books now. And with 20% off, you can send some to mom, wife, aunt, and even grandma. Erin, I love my books. I love a flower that lasts forever, and my books arrangements really do last a full solid week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have uh, I have some sitting on my kitchen table right now, mm-hmm. and they've been there for several days. And usually when I buy them at, like, the grocery store, they're sort of, like, starting to crap Fade. out pretty quickly. Yep. Not with books. They stick around. They look beautiful. I like how they kind of slowly open up and become even more beautiful as they sit on your, you know, wherever Absolutely, you Absolutely, because they're that fresh. So go to books.com and use promo code hysteria for 25% off. That's B-O-U-Q-S.com, promo code hysteria. Books, promo code hysteria. Hello and welcome to Hysteria. I'm Erin Ryan. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco. Alyssa, question for you this week. Okay, it's so one Wednesday. Donald Trump's adult children, love that phrase, adult children. Very uh, evocative. <laughs> adult children are losing their Secret Service protection. So my question is, which of the former guys, adult children, do you think would be the most annoying to protect as a Secret Service agent? I mean, Aaron, it's a real smorgasbord of choices here, isn't it? Like, on the one hand, I think that how Jared and Ivanka have been color-coordinating their outfits would be really annoying to have to witness as a Secret Service agent. But mostly, Don Jr.'s angry tirade benders that he does on Instagram, I think could only be worse in person. So maybe Don Jr.'s the worst to have to like be adjacent in any way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my first thought was Don Jr. also, but then I thought about the sort of things that Don Jr. likes to do. And he does like to go, I mean, I guess if how close do you need to be to him when he's like out big game hunting? If you I was just, thinking like, the same thing. Yeah, because if you just hang back in like in like nature and be like, all right, Don Jr. is going off to do his thing, and you don't have to like watch him kill the animals, you might get to go to like cool places like Montana. It'd be cool to be a fly fish like a fly fishing Secret Service agent in Montana. Yeah. That would be like more fun than doing whatever it is that Jared and Ivanka do, which is like stare at their beige walls and not let the Secret Service agents use bathrooms in their house. Remember they had six bathrooms yes. and they wouldn't even let them use the one in the garage? Oh, I um, recall. So Jared and Ivanka seem terrible, but I think that the one that would really uh, depress me is Tiffany. Just oh. because there's something very... Uh, sad just about that that her whole membership in that family and the way that uh, Donald Trump has seemed to like kind of neglect her for her whole life and then trot her out as this like to be honest it didn't even occur to me that she would have secret service 
Oh yeah, she's in Adele. <laughs> oh man, I know. Uh, so I so guess, that makes your we, point more salient. <laughs> I guess we have our answer. I, I wouldn't. I, this isn't a, this isn't a slam on Tiffany, although she doesn't seem like she has a lot going on upstairs. Um, <laughs> I just think that like witnessing the way that she's disenfranchised by the family would be uh, kind of sad. It would be a sad existence. But yeah, um, I think that's true. Yeah, but they all, but you know, we all, we both kind of agree that Eric wouldn't be as bad as the other ones. Eric's kind of a non issue. Yeah, like, he's, it seems like Donald Trump forgot about him too, and he didn't try to remind him about himself. So he sort of just like hovers on the margins. Right, right. And his wife, I know somebody who is friends with her, and apparently she can be nice to be around one on one, even though she's bad for America. Let's just be, put that in allegedly quotes. Allegedly. Allegedly, indeed. Okay, let's get to the show. (laughs) This week, we are joined by Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, Kim Kelly, and Julissa Arce to tackle the following questions. Why don't the billionaires just stay in space forever? What does reality TV and theoretical physics have in common? And why are customers ruder than ever? All this and more right now. Okay, Alyssa, news, news this week. There's a lot of political news, but I am annoyed by it. I'm taking a mental break. I, okay. I'm tired of tired of peeking in on the sausage being made. Like, I want I want the sausage on the other end. I don't want it. Yeah, guess what? We're cool. Yeah, yeah. We, we, I, we're cool for now. You guys figure it out. That's your job. Please qu- stop involving me. Um. So this week, Jeff Bezos sent a giant penis to space uh, after Richard Branson sent a rocket that looks less like a penis to space last week. Both billionaires are getting a lot of attention in the news media for their space flights, much of it fawning. Alyssa, will this attention finally be enough to fill whatever black hole exists in the soul of every billionaire that makes it impossible for them to understand the concept of enough? Why or why not? No, I mean, you know, I'm so complex. I'm so, I feel very conflicted about all the space news. But as it relates to their personal egos, it's not enough. The fawning, the Jeff Bezos. And also, why did anybody fall for the trick of the $100 million? Why do we care? I don't care that he's giving $100 million to Van Jones to do whatever Van Jones is going to do with the money. I care a little bit more about Jose Andreas because he is a, a stellar and amazing human being who will do great things with it. But I don't know, like, It's kind of like he heard that people all week were like, fuck Jeff Bezos and his penis ship going up. And he was like, I am going to throw a kicker in my press conference and I'm going to give away $200 million for people to do good with because I like harmony and I like people who can disagree without being disagreeable. And literally when he said all of that, I was like, you're just mad people made fun of your ship. Like, this is crazy. Right. Right. Also, lest we forget, his ex-wife, Mackenzie Scott, is whooping his ass when it comes to being a likable billionaire. She has given away so much more money. To, like, real things. To real things. And doesn't do a CNN show every time she does it. No. She sends out – she she does what a self-respecting philanthropist should do and sends out a press release. Exactly. Which, which is like, okay, fine. I mean y- – yeah, you don't have to be an anonymous donor, and that's fine. But I, I, Jeff Bezos, I, I don't know. I feel like 
billionaires should not be going to space because it seems like a really like super villainy flaunting of a wealth that they built with like the blood as mortar on the bricks of, you know, their mansions. And it, it, so, it just seems yes, gross. I agree with you on that. However, however, I do think that we need more money spent figuring out space. You know, back in the 1960s, four, four and a half percent of the federal budget went to NASA. And now only 0.48% of the federal budget goes to NASA. So I feel like, you know, and especially in the 80s when things caught fire and blew up and shit, people were like, "Mm, don't send our money to space anymore. But I do think that it is important since the current earth is burning and flooding everywhere that we like figure out what's going on elsewhere. So I am glad that this is happening. I don't think he should get like, you know, Nobel Peace Prize credit for it, which is what he seems to be pining after. All of them do. Um, But I am glad that we're learning that this is, I mean, the technologies that they have pioneered are important. The reusable booster. I mean, every time a rocket went up into space, it never was used again. And like now we may actually discover more things. And so I am glad for that. I think they should give all the technology to the U.S. government, you know, and be like, here you go. We did this for you. And not use it like, I mean, the outfits alone that they've had designed. I know. No, I know. They're not going to give it to the U.S. government. No, they're not. But that's. But what I'm saying is that would be the right thing. They don't even give what they're supposed to give to the U.S. government. This is my other point. If we also like, I am mad that he does not pay taxes. I am also mad that a sticking point for Republicans in the current infrastructure bill is that they don't want to give more money to the IRS. For tax enforcement. Like, what the fuck? I just want people to pay the taxes they're supposed to pay. Like, I'm not asking for people to pay more. Just pay your fucking fair share. So Republicans, like, I think it's hilarious because most of them are, like, not so rich that they're doing this for themselves. They're literally just doing it to, like, own the libs. I don't know. I don't know. They're doing it to to curry favor with these billionaires who they hope will throw them some crumbs. They're, they're like debasing themselves for like the smallest segment of like billionaire favor. Here's the thing that I am, I, I come down on another side of this. I don't okay. think we need to be focusing on sp- sending human beings to space. I think we should be devoting a lot more uh, resources to discovery. I agree with that. But I don't know that sending a human being physically into space is the best mechanism for uh, discovery. Like we should be, you know, uh, satellites, telescopes, like things that can measure, like like um, instruments to measure different forms of energy that we're just now beginning to understand. Uh, those things don't require us to to send fucking Jeff Bezos' dick No, I space. agree. I don't need Jeff Bezos in space. I just feel yeah. like if they're spending money to develop technology, that's fine. He just shouldn't right. get like Nobel Peace Prize level attention for it. Right. Yeah, I know. I, I agree. I also think that like, you know, what are these billionaires going to do with their technology to go to space? Because we know they're not going to be benevolent with it because they've never been benevolent about anything ever. You know, they're not right. going to like share it with with people who are doing research anymore in any way that is going to endanger their ability to make profit. They want to do like space mining. They want to do like $100,000 tourist trips to space. They want to do all this dumb bullshit that is like not really that helpful to humanity right 
now. You yeah, know? I don't understand the space tourism of it all. You know, I mean, that doesn't make sense. But then again, it's like I'm not mad about fucking like carnival cruises. I don't know. That's I just feel very. I'm mad about, about carnival cruises. I think. <laughs> I think cruises are they're like floating germ vessels. Well, no, I mean, I agree. I, yes, I completely agree. But I'm just like. I don't know. I guess if there's some good that can come from it, that's great. I just don't think that they should be lauded, you know, like conquering heroes when, I mean, come on now. Yeah. Billionaires shouldn't exist. Jeff Bezos is a terrible person. He should. He is. He is a terrible person. He is a terrible person who honestly also cannot handle adrenaline because he was acting a fool yesterday. (laughs) Yeah. Um, well, no matter how much uh, how much you have, if you just like lack the ability to know when is enough, or the, if you lack the ability to be satisfied, you're just gonna live a life of like sucking emptiness. And anyway, the um, one thing, the one end part yesterday that I also thought was quite funny is when Wally Funk, who was fucking high on life when she came back down from the stars. She kept saying, I want to go back. I want to go back soon. Let me tell you something. If he doesn't send her back again, she's going to have words. And I found that whole thing just very funny because she was dead fucking serious. That she wants to go back. So I hope that – I hope she harasses him till the end of time and gets to go back. Oh, let Wally Funk go to space all she wants. She all has, she wants. She can go to space tomorrow again if she wants to do that. That's totally fine with me. But like Jeff Bezos can take several seats. Um, okay, I want to talk really briefly about a story that is like that it's a every single time I read about this I am shocked by the magnitude of the problem because I am not personally dealing with the problem I'm lucky that I am not but U.S. overdose deaths hit a record in the pandemic year last year 93,000 people died of drug overdoses last year uh and meanwhile, while, you know, this this status floating around, um, we are right now in the midst of uh, opioid distributors settling a New York lawsuit for $1.1 billion. Melissa, does that seem like enough money for how many people they've killed? You know, $1.1 billion is a uh, pittance compared to what they made perpetrating this whole fucking scheme. But it's something, and it'll go to the people and the communities who need it. And at least some of these companies are ponying up at this point. Others, Purdue Pharma, are still trying to claim bankruptcy so they can get out of some of these cases, which is appalling. And uh, I think we know that AG Tish James will not stand for that, uh, and she is fighting it. But I am glad that at least, you know, over the course, and it's, it's you know, you have to read the fine print and everything, the $1.1 billion will be dispersed over 17 years. Um that's not Which even is, like an NBA player's salary. That's not even a single like, NBA player's salary. And that's garbage. Um, but at least it is, at least they are starting to pay, you know, which sends a signal to people doing shitty things right now that they may have to pay at some point. So I guess we'll take it, right? Yeah. Yeah, you know, it is it is incredibly shitty to me that people cannot erase their student loan debts by declaring bankruptcy, but companies that killed hundreds of thousands of people, if not more, and ruined millions and millions of lives can try to declare bankruptcy to get out of having to reckon with that totally in financially. It's hey, look, fucked. it's they learned it from watching Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah. 
I bet Liz Warren, former bankruptcy uh, professor at Harvard Law School, has some thoughts about this. Uh, but yeah. Um, okay. Really quick, let's end on a, on a high note before we get to our space-themed interview guest. Um, child tax credit. It's hitting people's accounts, Bank accounts. Like this month. This month. So families now receive up to $300 per child under six and $250 per child under 18 for every month through the end of the year. It's not really like a paycheck for having children, which is like how Fox News is trying to position it, which is very weird. It's just like a pre-rebate on your taxes because you're going right. to get that money back anyway. Um, hey, it's a start. $300 for a kid under six per month, is that's like diapers. That right? is diapers, which is like what people are doing with the money. Yeah. Yeah. They're using it to help take care of their children. And that is probably what we should be doing more of is giving people money and uh, having those people use that money in a way that is uh, directly beneficial to what it's supposed to benefit. And I think everyone would benefit from hearing uh, folks who are receiving this money talk about how the fact that the $300 or the $250 feels akin to life-changing money. That means mm -hmm. we must do better. Right. I mean, I, I think about right now, like trying to budget for like being a parent starting in like October, November this yeah. year and like and and taking a look at how everything costs, like having the cost of diaper related stuff paid for every month is right. huge. Is huge. Formula. I mean, yeah. there are so it, many things that uh, should be less expensive, but since they aren't, this seems like a decent start. Yes, it totally is. And also shouts to Rosa DeLauro who has been one of the architects yes. of this. Like, we need to have her back on the show with her purple hair um, to talk about And she about can this. tell us more about why this should 100% be made permanent. Yes. Okay, we got to get her back on the show. And one more thing, young people in Georgia and Florida are uh, activating to fight against redistricting that is uh, partisan and that 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 silences their voices. And I know we don't have enough time to give them the uh, the airtime that they're due for the amount of work they're doing, but shouts to the young people in Florida and Georgia who are activated and trying to preserve their voice in their democracies. Absolutely. Okay, let's take a quick break and then let's get to our guest. And welcome back. Alyssa, I love it when the stars align for us. It's it's so rare that our stars align. I feel like this week the stars really aligned because we have those billionaires doing their space tomfoolery. But we also have this guest lined up that is somebody who knows a ton about space who we've wanted to have on the show for a while. So I'm going to introduce her. Today, we are honored to welcome Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. She is a theoretical and astrophysicist, a feminist theorist, and author of The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space, Time, and Dreams Deferred, uh, a book that occasionally made me feel like I was breaking my brain or hallucinating. <laughs> and that is a huge compliment for the record. That is exactly what I look for in a book. I want to feel like I'm on mushrooms as I'm reading. Um, she is an assistant professor of physics and a faculty member in the Women's Studies Department at the University of New Hampshire. Welcome, Dr. Prescott-Weinstein. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. We are so glad to have you. Um, in your book, 
You talk about growing up with a love for science and learning and obviously an aptitude for both. Was there a moment when you were a kid or young adult when you felt like you fell in love with theoretical physics? When I was 10, my mom took me to see a documentary about Stephen Hawking directed by Errol Morris called A Brief History of Time. And I had to be kind of dragged to see the documentary. I think it made me miss like X-Men cartoons, which I was really big on the X-Men cartoon. And I'm... Halfway through the documentary, I like put all the pieces together that I could get paid to do math for a living and that this math described the universe. And as a working class kid who really liked math, this seemed like a, a good arrangement to be able to like just do math all day and get paid and not have to worry about like money anymore. <laughs> so um, that was that was it. I was sold. Um, I, I sent Stephen Hawking an email like maybe a year later asking how to become a theoretical physicist. And one of his graduate students replied and explained it to me. And I've been kind of following that roadmap ever since then. Oh, my God. What are you working on right now that you're most excited about? And is it possible to explain it to Aaron and I? Oh, man. This is like, I wish I had been prepared for this question. It's always <laughs> so hard to make choices. I, so actually, I'm this morning, I just gave two lectures, an introduction to astrophysics and an introduction to cosmology to the African School of Physics. And it was super fun putting that together, but also such a reminder that choices are difficult for me because like, I'm so excited about so many different things. But one of the things that I didn't get to talk about either really in the book or in, in the talks this morning was about neutron stars. So neutron stars are what we call stellar remnants. I like to call them like I don't know, like star skeletons or like dead stars. So there's something that you get after a star goes supernova. So after a very massive star explodes, um, it can leave behind this like neutron star core that is basically like neutron quark stew, very condensed. Like if you took the mass of the sun and squeezed it into Los Angeles, it's very, very dense, very, very massive. And I like them because they are good particle physics laboratories. And I'm thinking about um, what happens if you put dark matter inside of them. So that's something I'm really excited about right now. I um, followed that. I did too. Also, I think I feel like that's probably why you're a teacher because that yeah. is like a very complicated topic that I felt like I sort of followed. Also, picturing skeleton stars made the universe <laughs> seem very spooky to me. Um, okay, so let's talk about the world you're working within. So in the book, you write a lot about this, and this is something that you talk a lot about on your social media. So can you share with our listeners just how big of an issue is a lack of diversity in STEM? And how does homogeneity in an academic discipline do a disservice to people from diverse backgrounds who could and would contribute, if not for the, and I believe this is an academic term, bullshit? Um, yeah. and, and what needs to happen for things to improve? Oh, big question, again. I you know, often when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion in science, it gets framed through the lens of what is the damage that is done to science by, like, what if that's the kid that could solve the cosmic acceleration problem? Um, but, you know, instead, like, he doesn't have enough to eat. And that that tends to be the, like, um, the way that we think about it. And I just want to say, like, one of the problems with the, the this framing, of course, and this is why I'm glad, actually, you asked a different question. But one of the problems with this framing is that it articulates that kid, his entire value, 
becomes through the lens of what his labor could provide to science. And, you know, in the context of like American traditions around like thinking of some, certain people's value through the value that their labor can provide, um, this is particularly a bad thing like to talk about black people as like the primary value rate as, as a labor source. Like we've been there trying to get out of that, still not really out of that, working on it, right? Um, and so I do really think that the thing that we should be thinking about is the harm to that child of not being able to experience fulfilling their humanity, their, their curiosity, um, you know, being curious about the stars, being curious about the universe. And when someone says neutron star and you get really excited about, you know, hearing the word neutron star, feeling like you have the resources and the opportunity and the time to be curious. So, you know, not being hungry helps having your insulin helps all of the all of these things like these things like really help um so i i think that the damage really is to our humanity and to our ability to experience ourselves as fully human and you know whether we are treating each other as if we are all fully human mm-hmm. chanda who is an undercelebrated figure in physics or in stem in general that more people should know about So one person I talk about in the book is Elmer Imes. So Elmer was the second African-American to earn a PhD in physics uh, from from the University of Michigan. And um, he, for his dissertation work and afterwards, did work that confirmed that quantum mechanics was a thing basically. And this was really, so this is in 1918. So this is right as people are starting to try and figure out, like, you know, is this quantum mechanics thing, like what's happening here? And his experimental work affirmed that quantum mechanics was was needed to, to explain the data that, that we were getting. And um, so Elmer Eines is someone who I think is not widely known. You know, the way that physics students learn history of physics is basically through anecdotes in our, te- our textbooks and classes. And I never saw his name in a textbook as a student. I never heard a professor talk about him. Um, the way that I learned about him is because within the Black physics community, um, we have our own sort of cultural knowledge, but that that knowledge hasn't been brought out into the open. And so I would love to hear more discussion about Elmer Imes as an example. And one of the reasons that I think people should also be interested in Elmer Imes um, is that he was married to Nella Larson, the author of the great Harlem Renaissance novel, Passing, um, which was recently turned into a film starring Tessa Thompson, right? Uh, so he's he's an interesting cultural figure for, for that reason alone. He also went on to found the physics department at Fisk University. And so for those of us in the Black community, um, the Black physics community, I think that pretty much all of us in some way can trace our intellectual heritage back to Elmer Imes and the impact that the Fisk physics department has had on Black physicists um, through the last century. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about the Black physics community. I uh, I would love to hear more about that. Like, how large is the Black physics community? Is it growing? Describe, like, what that community looks like and how it functions. Yeah, so in the 1970s, just as the first African-American women were earning PhDs in physics, um, a group got together and formed an organization called the National Society of Black Physicists. And I really came up in that organization. I, for 15 years, was the chair of the Cosmology and Gravitation Committee. And um, with the exception for of, of, a, of a few years, there's been a conference every year where people get together 
And it's been a really important um, opportunity for students to meet other students like them. I, you know, students, black students who are at historically black colleges get to meet other black physics students. But for those of us who don't go to HBCUs, sometimes going to a meeting like NSVP is like the first time that we meet like another black student who, who does physics. So for me, NSVP has been um, historically really important. Right now, I'm focusing a lot of my energies on African-American women in physics and incorporated, um, which obviously is focusing specifically on, on black women in physics. And you know, one of the comments I want to make about that is patriarchy doesn't have a color line. And so that's certainly like, you know, a struggle that we have um, in dealing with, with gender issues. Um, African-American women in physics, there are about 100 of us with PhDs from departments of physics. And I just want to situate that number in context. There are 2,000 PhDs granted in physics in the United States every year. And in the last 50 years, since the first one was granted to a black woman, under 100 have gone to black American women. Um, so our PhD numbers are very small. At the bachelor's level, unfortunately, the number of black students earning bachelor's degrees in physics has um, leveled off and has declined somewhat over the last um, 15 years. And, um, you know, when you, if you ask, like, you know, what, what's happening there. Historically, Black colleges have been closing their physics departments um, because they can't afford to keep them open. And predominantly white institutions are not picking up the slack. And that really points to a need to send resources to HBCUs. Hmm. That's super interesting. Um, so we want to end on a little bit of a light note. Um, what do you do to decompress? And since your job is your brain, do you have any truly mindless hobbies? I watch a lot of reality TV. <laughs> <laughs> what are like, you I have, into? I have really strong opinions about this week's episode of The Bachelorette. <laughs> I, am, I have really strong opinions about 90 Day Fiance. Oh, I could go sight, on forever. <laughs> married at First Sight Australia and yes. Married at First Sight US. And on the Australian version, there's like a lot of Botox and filler. Like a yeah. lot of Botox and filler. Huh. So yeah, I, I mean, I guess like, I don't know. I'm giving you a whole analysis. So I'm not sure it's totally brainless. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of reality TV in our household. I also just want to shout out the podcast Drunk Librarians. I really like Drunk Librarians. <laughs> that sounds like just a fun activity in general. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The the reality TV thing is so interesting to me because I think a, lo a lot of smart, very smart women that I know um, love reality TV. And I, I don't think that it's totally mindless. I think that it is, it invites like reflection and like analysis, even though the product itself might be kind of not necessarily high art. The like thought <laughs> process can like really get you thinking about things. And I've fallen behind on this season of The Bachelorette and I'm I'm feeling maybe like I shouldn't have. Oh, is it good? I, I recommend getting back into it. I will say that I came to The Bachelorette late. This is the first season where I feel like I can see the connections and the connections make sense <laughs> to me. And also, I don't hate most of the guys that she is keeping. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, so I won't give away why that's the case, but I actually <laughs> think I'm... Um, I, I, I don't know how I feel about the hosting. I, I, I think I could do without the... I don't know. Maybe I'm not enough of a high femme for like the girl talk style thing that they're doing. <laughs> well, because it's still so stilted. Yeah. And I don't, they're like trying to fake this friendship. And I'm like, you guys, 
aren't, I don't know. It just, it doesn't seem, <laughs> I don't know. There's something weird about it. But, but is there I, anything higher femme than being able to tell when a relationship is not genuine? I think yes. that's maybe the highest femme of all of like picking guess, up on that. I would say like as a queer person who often like had difficulties understanding some of the dynamics between like the girls around me when I was like growing up, that the other thing that happens is that you spend a lot of time like observing and trying to figure out what's going on as kind of an outsider. And so I think like I have that kind of outsider point of view of I see these dynamics. I could not plug into them in any natural way, (laughs) but I recognize it. Right. And that, you know what, that actually sounds like something that would really serve you well as a scientist, like standing from like understanding that you are outside of it and that the, like what you are swimming in isn't necessary. like, you know, you know what I mean? Like noticing what's around you rather than just accepting it. Absolutely. I mean, this is something I, I'm, I can't even paraphrase it very well, but I quote Alice Walker in, in the book, talking about the value of the outsider's perspective that loneliness has actually taught her and how much that even seeing that line taught me um, as, as, as a, a black queer person in physics, um, you know, even as a, a, a very light-skinned one, I'm feeling like an outsider in different ways and dealing with homophobia and dealing with racism and dealing with sexism and dealing with sometimes those things happening within the communities that I was looking to for support. Um, that loneliness can give you an, a, a valuable outsider perspective. I hope that we can maintain that in science, but without the the shitty like loneliness part. <laughs> right, right, right. Loneliness as an asset, like solitude as an asset versus loneliness as an affliction. Um, yes. Well, Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, thank you so much for joining us. This was great. We could sit around talking about the way that everything kind of flows together from reality <laughs> TV to neutron stars and the quark soup that they are. Um, your book is fantastic, by the way. Thank you for writing it. I thanked you on Twitter, but I wanted to thank you using yes. my voice. Thank you. You're, reading your tweets, I was like, man, maybe I actually do need to try shrooms. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was like, oh, man. Um, so thank you so much for, for having me on. And, you know, if you do feel like doing an episode about reality shows, like, I'm here. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Seriously, if we did an episode on reality shows, the Motley crew we would assemble to talk about it be would amazing. be like, amazing. <laughs> thank you so much. And uh, have a great day and come back anytime. Thanks so much for having me. This episode is brought to you by IQ Bar. Power up your life with superior brain and body nutrition products from IQ Bar. Their plant protein bars are the perfect low-carb breakfast. Their IQ Mix zero-sugar hydration drinks replenish electrolytes. And their IQ Joe mushroom coffees will keep you focused all day long. Start each day right with IQ Bar's brain and body boosting bars, hydration mixes, and mushroom coffees. Their ultimate sampler pack includes all three. IQ Bar empowers doers with superior brain and body nutrition. All their products are entirely free from gluten, dairy, soy, GMOs, and artificial sweeteners. And today, Hysteria listeners get an exclusive offer of 20% off plus free shipping. Just text HYSTERIA to 64000. One thing I love about IQ Bar is, first of all, right now it's really dry where I am. Oh, okay. It is hard for me to stay hydrated. 
I just like I, I'll just be going through my day and I'll be like, why am I so like parched? I'm parched. I'm in a bad mood. I feel like I'm gonna pass out. And it's ah, you gotta drink some water. You gotta stay hydrated. I really like their IQ Mix Zero Sugar Hydration Drinks because it allows me to rehydrate myself at a time yeah. when I feel like the atmosphere is trying to take all my moisture away. Well, and sometimes you need more than just water. Sometimes you need more more than just water. I also love IQ bars because I love a portable breakfast. I love a grab-and-go breakfast. No dishes. Love something I can walk around holding and eating. I like something I can eat in my car without endangering the lives of me and every other motorist on the road. A breakfast burrito. <laughs> not, not the safest thing to eat behind the wheel. IQ bar, go ahead and do it. Good for you. Great ingredients. Helps you... Stay focused and alert throughout the day, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, and you don't have to dirty any dishes. Refuel smarter with IQ Bar's Ultimate Sampler Pack. That's seven IQ Bars, four IQ Mix sticks, and four IQ Joe sticks. And now our special podcast listeners get 20% off all IQ Bar products plus get free shipping. To get your 20% off, just text Hysteria to 64000. Get your discount. Text Hysteria to 64000. That's H-Y-S-T-E-R-I-A to 64000. Message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. And welcome back. Uh, Alyssa, you and I have both worked in the service industry, right? Yes. What, what kind of work did you do when you worked in the service industry? Um, let's see. I, uh, I scooped ice cream. I made drinks. I served hot food. I served cold food. Okay. Uh, and you've also mentioned on this very podcast that when you're hiring people, you care way more about service industry and retail experience than you do about like fancy yeah. un- unpaid internships. If you've never faced down hungry people, I don't want to know you. I need to know that you, that is the ultimate stress. Dealing with hungry people or hot people who want ice cream, there is no, there is no greater interface. So if you can handle that, you can pretty much handle anything is my point of view. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, with that being said, have you noticed that people have been acting like crazy assholes to service workers more than usual? I mean, it's like it's like hot dickhead summer. Yeah, it's it's gotten really alarming. Um, there have been some incidents that have come up, and I really thought that the time has come for us to talk about the service industry, the way people who work in the service industry are treated, and um, ways to be better customers. Um, if, yes. we're go- if we're going to restaurants right now, ways to be better customers. But um, to talk about this topic, I am so excited to welcome our panel today. First, she is a writer and you can pre-order her book, You Sound Like a White Girl, which comes out next March. Julissa Arce. Welcome, Julissa. Hello. Thank you. I'm so glad to be back. You know, every time I see anything watermelon flavored, since you yeah. talked about your watermelon margarita thing, I'm like, <laughs> I wonder if Julissa knows about this. <laughs> Please text me every time you see anything watermelon. I love watermelons. <laughs> like my favorite. Watermelon candy, watermelon dried candy, watermelon drinks, <laughs> anything watermelon. Watermelon shampoo, watermelon whatever. Um, I, I definitely will now. You are going to regret telling me <laughs> <you> that. <laughs> Um, And rounding out the panel, she writes about metal and organized labor, and this is her first time joining us on the panel. Kim Kelly, welcome. 
Thank you for having me. Um, Kim, I want to start with you since you're our guest. Um, I don't get it. So, like, how can consumers be disrespecting service workers when this side of last year we were, like, clapping for them? I don't get it. What gives? I mean, clapping is easy and interacting with a human being is a little more difficult, right? Than, like, hanging your ass out a window being like, oh, my God, we love you. As long as you <laughs> don't actually, you know, have to interact with us or serve us. So I don't have to pay you. I don't have to tip you. Like, this is good. Clapping is good. The rest of it, I don't know. <laughs> have you noticed um, an uptick in uh, either stories that have to do with people working in the service industry being mistreated? Or have you heard from people that you know who work in the service industry talking about being mistreated? And do you care to share any of those anecdotes? There's definitely been a trend. I've definitely heard a lot about it. I've been reading a lot about it. So, I mean, it's already really hard to work in the service industry. It's a really hard job. You have to deal with, you know, that's where the idea of emotional labor actually comes from. It's not like you're having to pick up your friend's dog for them from daycare or whatever. It's like having to be on, having to projects like cheer and care and respect to these assholes who you don't you know aren't even gonna leave you 10 percent like that's there's all of that on top of the regular work and labor working in a restaurant service but then you've got all of these maskless freaks who don't know how to act never knew how to act but really don't know how to act now when it's literally a life or death situation it's 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 really distressing to watch. I like barely go to restaurants and I feel very guilty when I do. And I tip like crazy when I do, but not everyone seems to have that approach. And people, the actual workers are suffering because there's mm -hmm. not even, I would hear from people earlier on where the guidance from the government, CDC, whatever was like, it was kind of dicey. People weren't entirely sure what they were supposed to do, what was safe, if ventilation was the key, if, okay, you know, hand sanitizer everywhere was the key. And it seems like it's only gotten worse. I mean, it seems like it was terrible earlier on in the pandemic. Now things are still not doing so great because people are still kind of in this weird limbo where they're not entirely sure what's correct. And mm -hmm. some people have decided what's correct. And that's usually not what's best for the workers. Mm -hmm. um, Julissa, have you noticed an uptick? Like when you uh, when you go out to a restaurant or when, when you talk to people that you know that either work in a restaurant or adjacent to a restaurant, have you noticed an uptick in people being mistreated? And are there any news stories of people being mistreated that you've particularly noticed or have stood out to you? Yeah. So I love food and I love going to restaurants <laughs> and I have started to go back to restaurants um, after I was vaccinated. And during the pandemic, I really tried to like do a lot of takeout to like try to support restaurants and things like that. Um, but I mean, I'm I'm glad that I have not uh, witnessed it myself where like a crazy person goes off on a server or on a waiter because I would definitely be the person who would like step in and like say something and like get in the middle of that fight to Fernando's horror. So uh, <laughs> lucky for him, we have not seen it personally. But one of the stories that really, um, really irked me was a, a recent story of a customer in a Houston restaurant, a Mexican restaurant in Houston, who threatened to call ICE on the workers uh, because they were asking him to put a mask on, which was like at the time... Um, to to Kim's point about sort of like what the regulations are and how politicians can make this even worse than it is. Uh, at that point, the Texas governor had sort of said, you didn't need a mask anymore. Um, and so I think there is like, I think it gives people this power to say like, 
well, you know, the governor said I can't, I don't have to wear a mask. So like now I'm going to call ice on you. And it, it just really, really bothers me when people use someone's, first of all, it's fucking racist because you're at a Mexican restaurant, assuming that people working at a Mexican restaurant are undocumented when like the owner of the restaurant has, like his family has been in Houston like many, many generations. Um, but uh, if someone is undocumented, sort of threaten their humanity, uh, their like entire life because you don't want to fucking wear a mask. It's just really, really, really disgusting. But I'm not surprised by it because, uh, you know, these types of things are making new stories now. But the fact is that uh, restaurant workers, service workers deal with this type of stuff all the time, even before the pandemic. It just wasn't it just wasn't news then. You know, it just wasn't, it wasn't making the Washington Post, like, front page uh, online. Like, it just was happening and people didn't really care about it. Or you would turn a blind eye to it or you would side with the customer because, quote unquote, the customer's always right, you know, um, without really understanding that, like, these people put up with so much on a daily, daily basis. And now, not only do they have to do their normal jobs, now they also have to work as, like, health officials telling people, reminding people to wear a mask to, you know, um, I was just in, in France and some of the restaurants we went uh, to there actually required to sh for us to show them our vaccination card or a COVID negative test. And I mean, that's been very controversial in, in France. Um, it seemed like most people were like showing it because they knew like just to even make a reservation at those places you had to show these things. Um, but it'll be interesting to see if more people start doing that kind of thing where you have to have like some sort of like health card or something that allows you to go in and maybe, maybe that's part of the answer so that people don't have to deal with this kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, it seems really, I mean, short-sighted and unfair for the government to make these giant proclamations and then the people that end up enforcing them are getting paid like the tipped minimum wage. Like they're not getting paid enough right. to deal with this. They never got they're paid not, enough. Let's they just never got, like. they don't get, they never got paid enough to do what they were doing without this being added on top of it. But it's like, you know, in, in LA, they just reinstated a mask mandate and even for vaccinated people. And like, that is that seems like a very unfair thing to ask of restaurant workers. Like there's never any outlay for like here's how we're going to enforce that that happens. Instead that just like falls on every business and it doesn't fall on the business owner to like stand outside of the business and be like who's wearing a mask? Who's not wearing a mask? It's like the person like working there. And and that just seems really unfair. Alyssa, um you're I mean we're we're in urban areas uh, Kim, Julissa, and I, but mm. you're like upstate New York. Like, yeah. is is the sort of like post pandemic uh, rudeness to people that work in restaurants or who are customer facing? Is that something that's urban, or is or, or do you notice that where you are too? So it's an interesting thing because it's summertime, and there are people now who come visit on the weekends. Weekend people, and I would say it is much more prevalent among the weekend folks that mm -hmm. you see. Because like for me, these are the stores I go to every day. Like these are my friends. Like some of my best friends just reopened their store. Um, and it's like so big and beautiful now. But, um, you know, so to me, it's like we go out to dinner 
And, you know, we we almost never go out on Friday or Saturday night because it's like, oh, you don't want to be in the crowded restaurant with all the people because it gets so much more stressful. But we have been. And it is like – it's a thing to watch people be like – like they've lost, as my friend Danielle would say, as if they've lost all their home training. Like suddenly they come out, they're like shouting at servers. They are – and like the truth is most of the wait staff, I would say, up here are overburdened, you know, where there used to be six servers, you know, at night. Now there are maybe four. And it's like I just don't know how you can go out. One, if you're in a hurry, you should get takeout, number one. And if you want to go out, you're like me and my husband who have been eating my food for the past 17 months and we are just so fucking happy to be out and having something that's like not what I've been making for a year, that it's like, and you know what? If we think a server has forgotten us, which is entirely possible because they have too many tables, we're just like, hey, could you just like when you get a chance, bring the wine? You know, like that is that is about the extent of it. But there are definitely people that we see who are like, um, excuse me. And truthfully, twice I've seen the restaurant manager like intervene and be like, mm, no, you don't get to do that. Because the funny thing is, is it because they're more weekend folks? It's like, you're not worried you're pissing off someone who's like your core business. This is probably someone who's rude and is never coming back again. So I encourage all managers to step in on behalf of their employees. Um, and also it's like the supply chain's fucking broken, okay? So when if it's still broken, it's still – if you go places, there is still shit that's not there. So if you go to a restaurant and your fucking favorite pasta dish isn't there, guess what? Maybe the fucking pasta didn't come in. Don't be a dick to the server. Like mm-hmm. it's just – it's there are so many things that are still so complicated. But I have seen – I have seen bad behavior up here for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kim, um, I'm sorry to put you on the spot here, but uh, – like, why do you th- do you think that, um, like, the way that people who work in the service industry are paid makes people feel entitled to treat them as less than? And can you give our listeners a little background on like what a tipped wage is and why it's as as low as it is? Right. Well, the tipped wage in America, I think, I think it's federal, is two dollars and thirteen cents per hour. Two dollars and thirteen cents per hour. And then the customers are expected to tip on top of that to make up that wage. Now, employers are supposed to make sh- to keep an eye on that and make sure that their workers are making the federal minimum wage. They're supposed to, you know, supplement that if they're, you know, if there's a bad day, if people aren't making a lot of tips. But are they going to do that every day? Of course not. They want to make money for themselves because it's a capitalist system. That's what we're trapped within. And so workers that are dealing with this tipped wage tips minimum wage, as it were, which could not be, is $2.13 an hour. I still, this has been, this has been the case for probably since before I was born, but I still can't get over that just as a baseline. I mean, the minimum wage itself is ridiculous in this country, but the, the tips minimum wage, the, it's very existence places the burden kind of on the consumer to pay these workers. And of course that creates a really vicious power imbalance where the workers are like, yo, I have to make sure I get this tip. I have to exert as much emotional labor and other types of labor as I can to make sure I please this customer. They like me, they leave me that 20%. And so that means that you're not just, if you're in this situation, you're not just doing your job. You're trying to make people happy. And if you don't make people happy, if someone has a bad night, if someone finds a fly in their food that you didn't put there, if someone you know trips on their way to the restaurant is mad about it, that's going to impact your bottom line. And that's going to impact your ability to pay your rent, to 
you know, feed your kids, go to school. Like it's, it all comes down to this really, really fucked up power dynamic. And this doesn't exist necessarily in other countries. This TIF minimum wage, this is a very American idea. And it's, it's, it's embarrassing that we're still doing this. You know, mm-hmm. we're also a country that has a sub-minimum wage that applies predominantly to people with disabilities who are, you know, meant apparently their labor doesn't count. It does not worth as much. There's this idea of whose labor is worth so much. Now, we, this is why it's been so difficult to advance the conversation around the $15 minimum wage in general, because there's this prevailing notion that, quote unquote, burger flippers don't deserve the same wage that people in other jobs have. And that attitude is what keeps these workers impoverished and hustling and trying so hard not to piss off tourists and whatever asshole who's sick of cooking and decided to take that out on some worker who has no other choice but to you know show up with a smile and try and go above and beyond because anything else is going to mean they're going to be broke. It's just, it makes me very mad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like a lot of things in this country make me very mad, but just think about that when you're going, if you don't know about this already, like the person serving you is making two bucks an hour to serve you. Anything else is at the, you know, it's at the discretion of whoever they happen to serve that day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's sort of you, you just talking kind of reminded me of when I, I worked at the Olive Garden for like a year when I was in college. And I really got the impression that there was like certain days and certain times of the week where I got the impression that people just came into the restaurant because they wanted to yell at someone in a tie. <laughs> like, like we're, you know, they wanted to feel like they were the boss of somebody. They wanted to feel like they could treat, you know, us the way, however they wanted to treat us. And there were absolutely no repercussions for them. I mean, although like never be mean to someone who's handling your food. Like, come on, that's (laughs) so stupid. Um, I never did anything to anybody's food, but I'm just saying as a general practice, don't be mean to hair and makeup and don't be mean to people who handle your food. Um, But I I got the impression that there was like people came there for the power imbalance. Like that was an, that was an appealing feature of for some people of like dining at that particular restaurant during certain times. Um, I was reading about, you know, the the restaurant industry just to get like, you know, more updated information from the last time I was in it. And it's the second biggest industry in this country. It employs more, more people than every other industry but one. And it primarily employs women. And uh, there are more people of color in the service industry than in other industries. And Jalisa, I would love to hear you speak on the way that we treat service workers kind of being a manifestation of like racism and sexism. Do you think that people feel like they can treat people in restaurants worse because of like, you know, the the hierarchies that they imagine exist? Yeah. So this issue, I mean, I, I was going down this like rabbit hole of how how deep it really goes. I mean, it just when like Kim was talking about how much money people make in the service industry and how little money they make, when you're a person of color, you make even less, right? Like in California's fine restaurants, uh, people of color make $6 less an hour than white workers do. There's a stat that basically says 35% of um, white restaurant workers make a living, make a living wage uh, where 
18% of people of color who work in restaurants do. So even in the service industry, you see these sort of like wage gaps between white people and workers of color. Um, the other thing, you know, you're mentioning that in the service industry, most of the people that work there are people of color. And this goes all the way back to what we we're talking earlier about sort of who is considered essential, right? And like these people were considered essential workers. And yet not only are... Uh, you know, most of the people that work in the service industry, people of color, but there is a large percentage of them who are undocumented, who work as dishwashers, who work as busboys. And um, when there were any kind of COVID relief, uh, these workers did not get any of that type of COVID relief. So if you think about just how little uh, COVID relief service workers received, undocumented people received nothing in, in, in many cases, even though they are contributed to the economy, they are contributed to taxes, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, but then the other thing that it really made me think about is how our healthcare system works in the United States and how we have this healthcare system that is tied to your employer. And many service employers don't have to give their employees health care, right? And so, unfortunately, it sort of all feeds into the same system of oppression that leaves people of color behind, whether it's through wages, whether it's through not giving them health care. Um, and then you add on top of that, people who I do really think you know, and you're talking about people coming into your restaurant feeling like they have some sort of power over you. I really do believe that that is even more so for people of color, where you see a person of color and you feel entitled to this person treating you a certain way. Um, and you view them as you're there to serve me, not like, you know, you're providing a service and I'm paying for that service, but my money entitles me to more than just your service. It entitles me to you. It entitles me to you for this next hour that you're going to be serving me my food. And I do think there's this expectation that uh, you're supposed to like cater to me versus I'm just doing my job. Here's your food. Goodbye. <laughs> you know, there's sort of like this extra expectation um, that I've seen. I mean, it goes back to the story about someone threatening to call ICE. And I think that people feel like they do have this power over people, that they have this power to say, you know, speak English in front of me. Uh, which we saw a lot of during the Trump years. Uh, people yelling at, at at servers, telling them to speak English when like they were speaking English. Um, and even if they're not, like I don't have to speak English in front of you. Um, so yeah, it's a real shit show. And it just, I mean, it just, it goes really, really deep. Um, and I usually go down a rabbit hole when I start thinking about these things because it just reminds me of how systemic all of this is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Kim, I wonder if there is like if there are policy solutions to the current like economic state of service workers that people who um, work in organized labor are discussing or are advocating for. I mean, it's not even just in labor, but raising the minimum wage to not, I mean, 15 bucks is a nice start at this point. But at this but at this point in, you know, our economic uh, life as a nation, the minimum wage should be closer to like $20, $22 an hour. Like people in the labor world, people in just the greater progressive social justice, whatever, not wanting people to die, space, whatever you'd call that, <laughs> have been advocating for this for years and years. We're getting a little bit closer. We're not getting as close as we would like to be because there's a bunch of elected politicians who don't give a shit about whether people live or die or starve or struggle in this country. But I mean, one of the things that the labor movement has its eye on right now is pushing very aggressively is the PRO Act, which wouldn't necessarily impact wages directly, 
but would impact workers' rights and ability to unionize, which does actually then impact wages once you get that set down in the contract. You know, once you get it set down in stone, because one nice manager here and there isn't going to address these systemic issues. It's not going to take care of all the people that need it. So, you know, advocating for a higher minimum wage, advocating for passing the PRO Act. And if you are, if you work in the industry, if you know people who work in the industry, organizing your workplace is really one of the few avenues that are available right now for working people, because there are unions and worker centers that deal with the service industry. Like there is help out there. There are people that are working on this and have been working on this for a very long time. Just a matter of connecting with them and then people who have power and money, getting them the resources and getting the policy blocks out of the way so they can do that work. Mm -hmm. Um, Alyssa, I wonder what uh, you think the solution is to like just generally improving the situation for people who work in the restaurant industry. As somebody who's been on this sort of like policy side, like what do you think needs to happen? Well, I think that Kim's right. I think that organizing and unionizing is really the best way. Like in numbers, there's power. And for the people in the service industry, I mean, it's like, look, there's only, there's really only, that's kind of the whole point behind, I think what Kim's saying is there's only so much you can do to make things better when it's totally self-regulated, right? Mm -hmm. I think as human beings, we should, you know, to Julissa's point, go in and be like, these people are providing a service. They're not serving me. You know, I think that if we can all just be better, you know, but people asking people to be better when they won't even fucking get vaccinated is like a <laughs> tall order. And so yeah. I would like to see the ratio of people who are acting like dicks to those who aren't vaccinated. I don't know. I feel like there's a real Venn diagram there. Um, <laughs> you mean a circle? A Venn circle? There's a Venn circle. There's a Venn circle. <laughs> Um, but no, that's the problem. There's not, I don't think there's not much that can be done without greater regulation, making sure that people are at least being paid in a way that they can save money, that they can stand up for themselves if they're treated terribly at work and quit and go work someplace else, um, mm -hmm. or have their union intervene on their behalf. That's the problem. It's like without money, people don't have power. And so we need to make sure that they have more money so that they can, you know, make decisions for their fucking livelihood and not be treated, you know, like, like shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That I was I profound. Love, uh, that was profound. Not be <laughs> it, it really, it, it went one way and then it went another way. Yeah. <laughs> I have a few friends who own restaurants, right? Who own just like, uh, not like chain restaurants who own just like a restaurant. Right. And, um, and I know that I've heard them sort of voice how difficult it is for them to just like stay afloat, right? And so like, I think that part of it also is just looking at sort of like the bigger picture of like, again, how my word for this episode is deep, how deep mm -hmm. these issues are. Because when you think about sort of like a mom and pop sort of restaurant um, that uh, their rents are, their rents keep going up and up and up because of some commercial real estate deal um, or, you know, because a, a, a venture capital bought the lot and now they're raising the rents. And so it kind of just really, it really is, it just, to me, a lot of these things come down to like this horrible capitalist system and society that we live in where it really, really um, benefits the most wealthy and the most billionaire. And there's a lot of people sort of in the middle that also kind of get caught in that. And um, 
yeah, you know, like I sort of, I feel for my friends that say like, I can't afford to pay my my busboy or my dishwasher $15 an hour. And at the same time, I think, well, maybe you you might be able to afford it if your rent wasn't going up right. astronomically, mm-hmm. right? If you're, if like PPP had actually gone to small business owners and not like the Lakers, you know? I mean, I know a lot of those people gave the money back after they got called out, but I think that's that's kind of the problem is a lot of times we see we're not able to sort of bifurcate more and say, okay, the way that we're going to treat like this chain restaurants that are corporations that are publicly traded, we're, they're, they're different than mm-hmm. yeah. the restaurant owner who like owns this one restaurant who, was, who put like their entire life savings into opening this restaurant, you know? And so I do think mm-hmm. we sort of have to make a distinction, uh, not to say that like if you work at a, at a fast food place versus like a mom and shop, you should make different money. But what I'm saying is like Mm -hmm. the regulations that we're talking about, about implementing, I do think that there needs to be um, sort of more thought behind how we regulate each of those entities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I also think that these big structural things we're talking about are not things that are going to happen over the next couple of weeks or a couple months. Uh, Hopefully that'll be like within the next couple of years as more and more people are aware of the like this awful problem. But I do want to talk a little bit about how we uh, who don't work in the service industry can be better customers at this time. And I reached out to a friend who works not directly in the service industry, but she's adjacent to it. And she does a lot of work with people who work in the service industry about ways to be like a better customer at, at this point. So I would love for everybody to kind of like talk about you know, what their thoughts are on that. Um, she told me that uh, the number one Problem. She thinks the root problem right now with people being ruder than they were before pandemic is their expectations are that things will be normal because, you know, hey, mm-hmm. you know, we're not wearing a mask. Things are normal. Things are not normal. And uh, restaurants are working short-staffed, like Alyssa mentioned. The supply chains are all screwed up, like Alyssa mentioned. So some things aren't on the menu anymore. Hours have changed. Like, there are all these things that have changed. And the normal way that people would get information about restaurants, like Google and Yelp, totally unreliable at this point. Right. Because it, it's not, the, the restaurant doesn't get to, to directly update their hours through those third-party sites. It's, a lot of times, they're just totally wrong. So customers will come in, having done zero research on their own, expecting things to be normal, and then get mad at the servers and the customer-facing people that things are not normal. And uh, that's fucked up. So my friend said, you know, if you... Find yourself being crabby at restaurants. Check uh, the restaurant's social media for the most mm-hmm. updated information because they can update that directly. So Instagram, a lot of restaurants use Instagram. If you want to go out to eat, check out the restaurant's Instagram. Usually that's pretty up to date. Uh, Facebook, restaurants update their Facebook pages as well. So make sure before you go out to eat that you're like, okay, my favorite dish isn't on the menu they're operating at reduced capacity and they close two hours earlier. But these are things that I have internalized and I accept and I'm at peace with and I'm going out and I'm not going to be a bitch. Um, those are like micro things that we can all do. Um, Alyssa, is there any way that your being a customer has changed when you go to a restaurant now? Yeah. So to your point, no matter where I'm going, I check their social media to see what the deal is. 
Um, and I call ahead to see if they even are seating tables because this is a big problem. So much seating has moved outside that whether you're out west where it's too hot to eat outside or you're here where it's rained three weeks in a row, you know, it's like that messes everything up. And so some of these restaurants have been taking reservations, you know, a month out, but now it's raining and they have fewer tables. So it's like, I just call ahead. I'm like, are you ex- are you taking walk-ins right now? And they say yes or no. And I'm like, okay, we'll be there in 20 minutes. And also the one thing that my friends have in their store is a sign that says here, I think that restaurants also have to communicate and and service like, like takeout places as much as they can. So like my friends have a sign that says, here's where you can order from the counter. It may take up to 10 minutes. Please be patient. If you don't have 10 minutes, do not order. Get something else. You know, like make it easy. But I think that's the being an informed consumer. Look, you do your research before you go to the fucking car dealer. Do it before you go to the restaurant. Make sure they're open and they have what you want. And then when you get there, don't be a dick. Mm -hmm. Um, Kim, I bet you have thoughts on uh, tipping. Like tipping (laughs) pre-pandemic expectations have probably changed post-pandemic. Do you tip more now? Oh, so much more. I mean, I usually don't even order food or go out for food because it's it costs so much more for me because I need to tip so much more to make it worthwhile to those workers so th- that comes down to it too like if you can't afford to tip well you can't afford to go out to dinner and mm-hmm. that's just how it is you got to accept that and internalize it like we are we are not leaving 10% tips anymore if mm-hmm. you ever were go fuck yourself but we're definitely <laughs> not leaving less than 20% anymore and I think that's something that needs to be hammered home you know as long as we're going to do this tipped wage bullshit. Like if you're going to participate in that system, you need to be responsible and be, just be cool about it, you know, (laughs) because the workers are depending on these tips and they're getting so much less of them because less people are going out, more people are, are depending on delivery. And it's, I think some people, hopefully I'm wrong. I think some people, maybe when you're ordering from an app and you don't really see a human as much, you think, oh, like, do I really like 15%? I was like, that's fine. Like 22% seems like a lot. You're just handing me food. But there's so much that goes into that food that you're being handed. You know, just like like you guys are saying, just thinking a little bit more broadly about the system and about putting in a little more work, checking Instagram, calling ahead, making sure you have enough to leave a fat tip. Like that's what eating out at restaurants is now. Like Mm -hmm. that's where we're at. And if you're not down to participate, then you don't get to play. Mm-hmm. And also there are restaurants now that you'll see a service charge on your bill. And I always ask if that service charge, in fact, goes to the employees because it can be misleading. You can think some are using it to deal with overages and how much food costs now, like for their bottom line. But for some, it means it's going to the employees. So I always like to ask because people can mistake it and think, oh, a service charge. Of course, that's going to the wait staff or the folks in the kitchen. And sometimes it's not. So I always ask. Mm -hmm. That's a really good tip. Um, Julissa, you mentioned before that you are a person who intervenes. Um, I would love to hear your, like how, I would love to hear your tips on how to intervene if you're a customer and you witness a staffer being abused or mistreated. Like what would you do if you're out at a restaurant and you saw that happen? I think it depends on the situation Um, because I think sometimes I am too quick to like, Try to, you know, jump into the situation and be like, don't be an asshole or, you know, I mean, I or, or, or try to be like, sir, please, like, can you be more patient or like, do you really have to say that? Or in other situations where like if I heard somebody tell a server, I'm going to call ice on you. I mean, 
put some gloves on me because <laughs> that situation would not be pretty, you know? Where I think like, I think, you know, to be honest, I think there's been times when like I've been sort of the impatient person being like, excuse me, like, where's my food? I ordered 20 minutes ago, you know, like, uh, and but I, I, I try really hard not to, like when I am complaining about something, not to be like rude about it, but to simply like voice what is happening. Um, I don't know that I necessarily have like tips one, two, three on how to intervene. But I do really think that, I mean, this is going to be super cheesy, but I do really think that like if you see some, if you see something, say something is like a good uh, tip to sort of live by. Um, because I do think that that there are times when service workers might not feel like they have agency in a situation like that where maybe they don't have a supporter, a supportive manager that is actually going to fault them for um, for saying something back. Um, and so in those cases, I do think that, you know, you as a bystander can put someone, um, can stand up for someone. Um, and I would rather be wrong about standing up for someone than like not standing up for someone at all. Mm-hmm. These are why so many lefty and progressive groups are like just locally will offer bystander trainings to people. And, you know, prior to you know this moment, like that's mostly to help folks who are like racial or religious minorities who might get hassled while they're out or to help women and people who aren't men try and, you know, figure out how to help one another when we're being hassled. But honestly, looking at looking into those kinds of trainings as a way to figure out how to intervene when you're seeing this happen to workers at restaurants or retail places, like that could be something to add to your own personal toolkit for being a better person and learning the, the ways to de-escalate and to intervene that mm-hmm. keep everybody safe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That's a great tip. Um, all right. We are all going to be better, better customers, better consumers and uh, better bystanders. And um, guys, this is a great conversation. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, I feel petty. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. And welcome back. We have almost reached the end of the show, but not quite. It is time for I Feel Petty. But first, a little bit of housekeeping. It's that time of year. We want to know more about you, what you think of the show, and what we could do to make crooked content even better for you. If you love it, we want to know. If you hate it, we still want to know. Do we? Do we still want to? No, we do want to know. We want to be better. Just like, you know, couch your hate and constructive 
give us constructive hate, you know? There's a quick survey on crooked.com slash survey, and it would help us a lot if you were able to fill it out to say thank you. We're offering a 20% discount on any order from the Crooked store for everyone who takes the time to do it. Find the survey at crooked.com slash survey. Okay, the house has been kept. Now let's talk about the little things that are causing us to have a big mad this week. Uh, Alyssa, do you want to go first? What are you feeling petty about? Okay, you guys. So there's like a lot to to unpack, you know, over the past couple of weeks with all the like billionaires going into space. But in the press conference that Jeff Bezos did the other day, his where he was feted, you know, by the national press, which, which is fucking fine. I don't even care. Except he pulled out, he started talking about like pioneers, right? He talked about Kitty Hawk. He talked about Amelia Earhart. And out of the audience, he pulls Amelia Earhart's goggles and starts talking about Wally Funk, who is sitting next to him, who couldn't go into space until she was 81. And I'm like, you know what? This is fucking rad. He's going to give her Amelia Earhart's goggles. This is insane. And he didn't. He just brought them up on stage (laughs) and handled them gingerly like this, (laughs) leaned towards Wally so she could look at them. And then gave them back to some handler. And I was just like, I thought that was the bitchiest billionaire move of all time. He literally was taking out all the shit he got at Sotheby's and Christie's auction one by one yesterday in front of the CNN cameras. And he just held them so gently. And then he didn't give it. If he had given, that was such a missed opportunity. It is, he, that would have been so rad if he had given those to Wally, which I thought was a fait accompli when he started the whole Amelia Earhart thing. But he didn't. He handed them back to someone in the audience to wrap them, I'm sure, in some delicate felt to not be looked at again for many, many years. Ugh. That sucks. He sucks. Yeah, it was fucking gross. <laughs> God, he sucks so bad. I don't, ugh, God. Okay. Um, Kim, what are you feeling petty about this week? This is very dumb. This is very much a me problem, but it's been <laughs> destroying my life, making me want to walk into the sea. So I live, I live in an old neighborhood in South Philly, a little tiny house and a little courtyard. And for a long time, before the pandemic, there's a vacant lot kind of in front of my house. And it was great. We planted sunflowers. We had a hammock and we had a nice little community sort of garden going on. Of course, a bunch of developers bought that lot and they built these giant four-story condos that cost like 600 grand a pop and people moved into them. And like, okay, I guess that's allowed. But, and this is where I turn into my dad, they leave their (laughs) lights on all the time. Uh. (laughs) Every window, every light in the house, just because you can afford to leave your lights on doesn't mean I want to see them. I know it's not that expensive to leave your lights on, but I still feel like it's an affront because why do you have all the lights on? This is just like an old man rage moment, but it's been making me so angry and I've been trying to figure out ways that I can get revenge. And I think if they keep it up, I'm also moving soon. So I might just start blasting death metal out of my speakers towards their house just so we have a little equal exchange of annoyance. And I think I'll win. I turn the lights off. You're not trying to, it's like, I'm not trying to, it's like keeping the window open when you have the AC on. I'm not trying to pool off the whole neighborhood. I'm like like 700 years old right now, but I'm so mad. I had to tell somebody about them keeping all the goddamn lights on. Yeah. I mean, light pollution is a real thing too. It's not good for the animals that live there naturally. Like birds don't appreciate light pollution. The lush flora and fauna of South Philadelphia. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 
America's Galapagos, South <laughs> Philly. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I relate to your old man rage, Kim, for sure. Um, okay, I was debating a couple of I feel petties this week, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and make it more topical. Um, I watched the NBA Finals and the Milwaukee Bucks won in six games, and I could not be I could be happier about it, but I'm very happy about it. I feel like <laughs> the state of Wisconsin deserved a national news story about it that wasn't embarrassing, that wasn't about like like voting rights suppression or union busting or having a, a real dumb senator who was kind of like like borderline treasonous. I'm talking about Ron Johnson, obviously, <laughs> not Tammy Baldwin. Um, I, I think Wisconsin really deserved a win. And I think Milwaukee as a city is very underrated. It's got really good bones. It's right by the lake. And having the Bucks in Milwaukee is such a positive thing. Um, I hope people who live in Milwaukee are very proud. Also, shout out to Representative Gwen Moore, who we've had on the show a couple times. Love her. And the last time we had her on, it was like the winter of her discontent when it came to the Bucks. She thought they were going to lose out. So um, I'm just really happy for the people of Milwaukee. I'm really happy for the state of Wisconsin for getting a good story. And I'm really happy for Yanis, who has the coolest accent in all of sports. <laughs> it is like, but he has just like a very fun speaking voice to listen to. And I just wins all the way down. The Bucks are just a fun team and I'm I'm so happy that they that they won. Even though I liked Phoenix also. Um but, you know, the Bucks are better. Um okay, so that's what I'm feeling petty about this week. Um Julissa, you want to Wait, I'm out? confused. What's what are you feeling? What's the petty in it? I'm feeling like petty about like, yes, finally, Wisconsin, we got it. We got one because we've been getting all these embarrassing stories for so long. It's like our politics are so contentious. Our senator Ron Johnson is so embarrassing. Like other sports, you know, Aaron Rodgers is being a drama queen about going back to, will he or won't he go back to the Packers? Like it's all, it just, having something like this feels, feels very good. And I feel very like defensive about my home state, even though there's like a ton of shit wrong with it. And it's just like really good when finally, it's like finally this one good thing happened. And I feel like, you know, they can ride this for a while. So I'm feeling, I'm feeling pettily, proud of my state because <laughs> ultimately sports championships don't matter. They don't matter. None of those guys would like care if I got struck by lightning. You know what I mean? No <laughs> Milwaukee buck would be upset if anything bad happened to me. Like I would be devastated if Yanni's like tore his ACL, but he probably, you know, oh, Aaron got hit by a car. <laughs> who? I don't know who that is. Um, so I realize that it is like petty to be like that happy about a sports thing, but I am that happy about a sports thing. So that doesn't really matter, but it does. Um, I get it. Okay. Now. Okay. Julissa, do you want to bring us home? <laughs> yeah. So um, I went on vacation and um, there's lots of things to, f I mean, there's lots of things to like celebrate about, you know, on vacation. I was very happy, but something very, I felt very petty about something that happened during vacation. Well, several things, three specific instances of pettiness during this vacation. Number one, and I love service workers. We've established that, but this is the flip side of the service worker customer relationship. Okay. We went to this really fancy restaurant uh, outside of Cannes. And uh, so you're in we, France. We so were this in France. Is a totally I was in France. Different. Okay. This is totally different. Okay. We're in France. It's a very fancy restaurant that I felt somewhat guilty about being, even like being at this restaurant, being in this in very over the top environment. But I went and I enjoyed it, had its really amazing beautiful dinner. And at the end, the server goes, you know, it's four brown people. 
sitting at, at this table, only brown people in the entire place. And the server says, you know, um, I, um, I don't know if you, if you know this, you know, but in France is different than um, other places uh, in Europe. And so um, the service is not included. So like if you want to leave an additional 5%, 10% um, in France is different. And I'm like, this mofo really is trying to hustle me out of like extra money because one, I know that's not true. Like, and I have been to France many times and I know for a fact that you don't, and especially at a place like this where, I mean, I I'm, would be embarrassed to even say how much money we spent on this meal. So I'm not going to say it, but like, no, sir, your, your, your service has been I do not need to leave you an extra 5, 10%. And like, how dare you assume that I've never been to France and I don't know how things in France work. Number one, super petty about that. We were all looking at each other like, <laughs> is he, fuck? did he really just try to hustle us out of like more money? Like, I would have fallen for that, Jalisa. I've never been to France. I was in an airport in France. No, once. I mean, like, I, 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 I have like, tried okay. leaving a tip in France and like, they tell me no. They're like, no, don't, don't leave a tip. Like, they like you don't leave a tip there. I mean, you can, I guess, if you want to, right? But like, it's the way he said it to like as- assume that I had never been there, that we had never been there. None of the other tables around us were being told that. I mean, I, I was feeling very petty about it, but I was like, okay, whatever. I'm gonna let this. I'm gonna let this go, and I let it go. You know, this like French thing until I went to this vineyard in. Uh, Bordeaux and it was beautiful amazing and then later I went on this tour this food tour and the girl was telling trying to tell me how shitty American wine is like she's like American wine is so shitty and like you know you pay 30 40 dollars for a bottle of wine that is shitty and I mean I heard her you know I kept hearing her telling me how shitty American wine was for like an hour during this tour (laughs) and I was like ma'am do you realize that the roots of your vines are American. And she was like, what? And I was like, yes, a long time ago, there was this disease that killed all the vines in Europe. And so you had to bring in American vines because American uh, vines were resistant to this disease. And so your, your vineyards that you have here are thanks to American roots, American uh, vines, and it's a hybrid. So you're welcome. And she was like, I don't think so. And I was like, you need That's to Google that shit. Amazing. Because yes, it is true. And you know, this is not me being all like, uh, go America. Because if you'll know me by now, that's like definitely not me. But I was just like, that is not your vibe at all. But I was like, how dare you? And you should know your history. Okay. Which leads me to petty number three. And I will be done after this. You know, same tour, same girl starts talking about how Bordeaux is like this really posh city. And then part of the tour was going through this very ethnic part of Bordeaux. And she's like, you know, this part of Bordeaux is not as pretty. It hasn't been updated. And in my mind, I'm like, bitch, you mean this part of the city where all the brown people live has been basically neglected uh, and has not, no money has been spent on the infrastructure of this part of Bordeaux. Then she started talking about how the merchants were so rich and, and, compl- and, and talked about how Bordeaux was like number three or number six or something in like the slave trade as though it was like a proud thing to be, something to be proud of. And I was like, you do realize that the reason these people were rich is because of the, of the people they were enslaving. And then I was like, okay, I, 
I don't want to like make a scene in this tour, but I was so upset at how, oh, because also she had said that America doesn't have a history as long as Europe, which is like the biggest misconception because the history of America didn't start with the United States. Like there is like thousands of years of history (sighs) in the Americas. So anyways, all of that to say, I feel very petty about the fact that people don't know their history, about the fact that people still think that like, Everything starts and ends with like European history. That a European I mean, history is like the end all be all. Um, but other was than that, that, Rick Santorum in a wig. <laughs> Are you sure that that tour guide wasn't just Rick Santorum? We made this country. We birthed this country out of nothing. Oh my yeah. gosh. Um, other than that, though, I had an incredible vacation. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> I ate a bunch of uh, amazing food. I drank a bunch of amazing wine. I would do it all over again. But um, I felt very petty about those three things that happened to me while I was on vacation. <laughs> what I did on my summer vacation by Julissa <laughs> Um, And that's all the time we have for the show today. Uh, thank you, Julissa, for coming by. Kim, thank you for being on the panel for the first and hopefully not the last time. We would love to have you back. Alyssa, thank you for being my ride or die. Thank you to Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein for stopping by and talking about space with us. And thanks to you, the listeners. There will be more hysteria next week. I am from another planet. This nation Hysteria is a Crooked Media production. Caroline Rustin is our producer. Our executive producer is me, Aaron Ryan. Alyssa Mastromonaco is our co-producer, and Brian Semmel is our associate producer. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer, and our editor is Sarah Gibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. Our digital team is Nar Melkonian, Mia Kelman, and Matt DeGroote. Thank you to Juliet Beckstrand for production support every week. <laughs>